Thank you very much, Pastor. I'm very, very pleased to be here with you today. Uh, I feel like we're not really visitors because I've gotten to know so many people from this congregation involved in uh, mission work uh, in Uganda. Many people have come up and hugged my neck today and, and said that I clean up pretty good. Uh, after you've been in Uganda for three or four weeks, you get kind of grubby and they've never seen me with a suit and tie on. Incidentally, this tie is the color of the flag of Uganda. It even has the little crested crane, which is also on the uh, official bird of Uganda. And in its natural plumage, it has all three of these colors. And so that's just a little history lesson from Uganda uh, while I'm again. Our scripture text this morning comes from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 15, and I want to begin to read with verse 1, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Romans chapter 15, beginning with verse 1, this is the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and life. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on, on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might find hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus, with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, uh, will come even he who arises uh, to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Shall we conclude the reading of God's word with prayer? Most gracious and merciful Father in heaven, Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come into you now at this portion in our service where we open your word and we ask you by your Holy Spirit to speak to us through this word and teach us from it what we are to believe concerning you and what duty you require of us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It has been my privilege over the last 23 years to make 40 short-term mission trips to Uganda. In all 40 of those trips, I've seen opportunity where people confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. U Uganda is a country that is responsive 
to the gospel. I have visited the nation of Israel where the gospel was first preached and where the church was born. And officially there is hostility towards Christianity here. When you show up, you cannot show up as a Christian missionary. When I went into Israel and they looked at my passport and they saw all the times I'd been to Uganda, they asked me, why have you gone to Uganda so many times? And then a couple of years ago, I got an opportunity to visit Japan, where Christian missionaries have labored for over 100 years, and today, less than 1% of the population in that country are believers. That means if this gathering right here were a Japanese gathering in Japan, and we had been meeting together for a hundred years, two, maybe three people from here would come to this church. It's not responsive to the gospel to have good offerings. I was interested in Japan to meet Dan Irison. He's from the Irison family of the great Shenandoah Presbyterian Church in Miami, and his grandfather wrote Spirit of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me. Dan's leading the MPW mission team in Japan. And uh, he talked about how difficult it was to reach that country and the steps that they take in order to reach people. And just very quickly, I'll run through them. He says there's six steps of a funnel that they use to, to bring people into the church. And the first one is contact, just an ordinary contact where you, where you meet somebody and you strike up a conversation with them and get to know them. That leads to an open contact, someone who's willing to talk with you and be friends with you. And then this, con this open contact becomes a seeker, wanting to know about Bible truth. And then by God's providence, they become a believer. And after that, they are baptized Number six, they become a disciple follower of Christ. A minimum of two years, sometimes as many as five, for this to take place. We go to Uganda and we preach the gospel and people come to Christ on a Wednesday in an open-air meeting and Sunday they're in church. Quite a difference, quite a contrast. Rod L. Moody was once preaching and a man came up to him and said, you know, I don't like your method of evangelism. And uh, Dr. Moody said, you know, I don't either. Tell me about yours. I may like it better. <laughs> I guess you all have heard this story. And the man said, well, I don't have one. And then Moody says, well, I guess I like my poor way of doing it better than you not doing it at all. Another thing I learned from Dan Iverson was a phrase that I had learned, known all my life, learned it. As a young boy, I'm sure my father taught it to me. But I found out after growing up and knowing this for so many years, it was really a, a wrong statement. And that, that is the great American statement that anything worth doing is worth doing well. And Dan Iverson said, no, he's learned in mission work, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. And I instantly got that because I've been a pastor for 40 years. And I've seen church after church after church and, and activity after activity after activity fail because people were waiting until they could do it perfectly. And
And so because they couldn't do it perfectly, what did they do? Nothing at all. Hence, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. We need to improve on it and make it better and better. But don't let your inability to do something perfectly stop you from doing it at all. After all, we're sharing the only hope of the world. And that is the redeeming gospel of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to share that message at every opportunity in every way that we possibly can. I've sought to encourage members in my church, church I've pastored two churches in, in 40 years, and I've always tried to encourage my people to become witnesses. And incidentally, if you hang around me long, you'll figure out that I use the word missions and I use the word evangelism interchangeably. If I say missions, I mean evangelism. If I say evangelism, I mean missions too because I, they're all one great big ball of wax. But I have tried and tried and tried to encourage my people in my church, churches to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then one day I was reading in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 where, where Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And it finally occurred to me after many, many years, Jesus wasn't saying, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, I hope you'll volunteer to be a witness for me. He didn't say, he said, you are my witnesses. So the question is, how good of a witness are we? Are you? How good of a witness are we? The Bible already says we are witnesses, but are we making the most of every opportunity? Are we training and preparing ourselves so that we can make a difference to the people around us? For most of my years in the ministry, I learned that most people's method of evangelism and dealing with questions that people asked them was to dial 1-800-PASTOR. Because after all, the pastor, he's the professional one in the church. And all my job is to do is to point people to him. Well, I don't think you'll find that model in scriptures anywhere at all. Pastor teaches to train and equip so that we all might do the ministry of the church. Every one of us be involved in every way that we can. In our text today, that's just verses 8 and 9 of what I read. There are what I see as four keys uh, that give us the vision, min uh, uh, mission, vision, purpose, and plan for the work of missions and evangelism. And the first one is a servant heart. And that is the instrument for missions. Christ is the Lord and King of glory. Yet remember these words from the Apostle Paul. who He said, even though uh, he was in the form of God, he did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, I stated earlier, I'm reading from ESV, and I really love this translation, but this particular verse, I, I don't like the phrase he emptied himself because I really don't think Jesus emptied himself of anything. 
he, he put his divinity aside, but he didn't stop being the son of a living God uh, during the time that he was on this earth. But that's a sermon for another day uh, and another time. Paul tells us that this should be our attitude, the attitude of a servant heart. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you all to go out of here knowing that what Pastor Bob Hayes said today is we must have a servant heart. And since he is not here and cannot defend himself, I will say that is one thing that drew me to join in ministry with J.D. Bonner is his heart is bigger than his bones. Servant heart to the nth degree. And that is what is necessary for ministry. I've seen people show up in Uganda. Yes, sir, we're from America. We've come here to straighten you out. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. But my heart was broken on this and changed in the early 1990s. We had about 12, 13 men uh, and their families from the uh, Air Force Base there in Panama City were members of our church, including six F-15 pilots. Good group of guys to know. In fact, they had so much influence that my youngest son is a pilot in the Air Force today and will be flying to London this afternoon and then flying a UP spy plane from uh, London to uh, Athens uh, tomorrow. Much to the trepidation of his mother and father. But uh, at any rate, we had all these people at Tyndall Air Force Base. So we arranged to have a prayer meeting, a missions prayer meeting in the chapel every Thursday from 12 o'clock, from noon until 1, uh, 1 p.m. It took us three weeks to get permission for Air Force people to have prayer in the Air Force Chapel, but that's another issue. And that was even many years ago. But we got together to pray for missions, and we didn't jib-jab for 59 and a half minutes and then have someone close. We prayed for one hour. And as soon as the second person arrived, they started praying. And you shared your prayer request as you prayed, and other people picked up on it and joined in in praying for that. But on one such occasion, there was a family in our church. Uh, he, was, he had been born in the Netherlands. He was a Dutch Jew. And he was on a Nazi train going to a concentration camp. It wasn't a cattle car train. It was a regular passenger train. And he was sitting uh, in the front seat, and there was a guard sitting in a chair right by the door. And as they were lumbering along during the night, he jumped up and opened the door and jumped out of the train. And he, he was crippled for the rest of his life as a result of what he hit when he jumped out of the train. But he told me, he said, I didn't know what was outside the train, but I knew it was better than whatever was inside the train. But uh, later on, he became a believer in Christ and became personal friends with Brother Andrew of the book God Smuggler. I'm sure some of you have read that. And one day, they had a mutual friend who was in Panama City visiting with my friends, and he heard of our missions conference, and he called and asked if I would pick him up and take him so he could join our conference. And I did, and while he and I were riding out there, we got to talking, and this was at the time when, you, when the word commission meant that there were thousands of young Americans who were flooding into the old Soviet Union to do missions work. And I thought that was the most wonderful thing we had ever done as a country. 
And as we were riding along, that man said, you know, in the old Soviet Union, for 75 years, Christians have been imprisoned. They've been drugged. They've had their children taken away from them. They've been murdered. They've been sent to gulags. They've lost their jobs. And now we've got all these snotty-nosed kids from America coming over here to tell us what it means to be a Christian. Boy, did that break my heart. Jesus became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, that he might bring them to salvation and ultimately through them the Gentiles as well. Jesus, when he was going into Jerusalem, he saw the crowds and it's his, with his servant heart, he had a compassion and a mercy for them. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And where there is no servant heart, there will be no mission. Secondly, God's truthfulness, the message for mission. From the very beginning, Satan has attacked the truthfulness of God. In the Garden of Eden, Satan said to Eve, did God really say that if you eat of this tree, and we all know the rest of the story, Satan was saying, you know, God's a liar. He didn't really say that. He didn't really mean that. So the truthfulness of God has been challenged from the very beginning. And Christ's coming is a vindication of that truth. And Christ's coming is that we might share this truth to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. John 17, 17, your word is truth. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, I can make a decision today, and I have to change it tomorrow. Why? Because I learned something new tomorrow that I didn't know today when I made the decision. But there will never be a day when the sun comes up and Jesus has to say, wait a minute, i got to do this differently. I didn't know this was going to happen. Never happens. So his truth is eternal. And it's one of the things that's killing our nation right now is we've lost sight of absolute, unchangeable truth. There are some things that are right and they're always right and they will always be right because God says so. It doesn't matter what the Congress votes or what the people want or think. It doesn't matter. It's right because God says it's right or it's wrong because God says it's wrong. His truthfulness. That's the message because that is the message of hope. If you'd been in Sunday school, you would have heard a very, two very good presentations about uh, prison ministry and about uh, the, the pro-life ministry and dealing with women in, in crisis. I, I, I can tell you, 10 years ago, I was asked to do a, a post-abortion uh, conference to where I was asked to, to preach and to pray, and they had a bunch of candles on the stage, and after I preached, each of the ladies came up and lit a candle and told something. And I, 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 I mean, I had been involved in pro-life ministry from the very beginning. I preached my very first pro-life sermon in 1975, one year after Roe versus Wade. But these ladies came up, and there was one lady there, and she lit a candle, and she said, this is for my son Charles. He would be 30 years old now. And she stood there with streams of tears running down her face. 30 years later, and yet we're told, ah, it's just tissue, don't worry about it. Doesn't matter, it's nothing. 
You see, my friends, the truth sets people free. Lies enslave them. Thirdly, God's promise, the power of mission. The promise began in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel promise. I will put enmity between the woman, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The first promise of the gospel. There are over 324 promises in the Old Testament, messianic promises that tell us what Je- who Jesus will be and what he will do. And they uh, all, except his second coming, have been fulfilled. My friends, that's the power in mission. We're dealing with the truth. We're dealing with a God who does not lie. A God who does what he says. We sing a little song, God never moves without purpose or plan. When trying a servant and molding a man, it was written by a young man who while in seminary lost an eye to cancer. And he wears a patch over his eye today. And he has a ministry among children known as uh, Patch the Pirate. And he turned this horrible thing uh, into a great ministry among children. God does not move without purpose or plan. And the power and mission are the promises of God. When we go out and preach and teach and evangelize, we do so knowing that there will be those who believe from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And then finally, God's glory, the motive for mission. John Piper is often quoted as saying, missions exist because worship does not. The ultimate goal of missions is for people all over this world to gather in places like this this morning and sing the praise and glory of God. And that is our motive, that men and women and boys and girls everywhere bring glory to God, the creator and sustainer of all things. When we see the drug addict, the prisoner, the prostitute, the murderer, the abortionist, or whomever, we good people in the church often look at them with disgust when we should look at them with broken hearts crying out for their redemption that they might come and glorify God sing praises to the name on high in 1 Corinthians 10.31 Paul says whether you eat or whether you drink do all of the glory of God if I'd been writing that I would have said when you do something important like worship, you need to do that to the glory of God. But he took something mundane and everyday, and that's eating. Of course, it's in the context of not offending someone by eating something that's been offered to an idol. But he said whether you eat or whether you drink, do all of the glory of God. Over the years as a pastor, I've had many, many people come to me wanting help from the church. And after a while, you try to pray for the wisdom of Solomon, try to figure all this out. And I began to ask people, well, what church do you belong to? Well, I'm a Baptist. I said, well, have you considered going down to the Baptist church? Or I'm a Methodist. Have you? And, and, and just not that I'm not willing to help them. I'm just trying to make them think. And then if I had somebody say, well, I'm a Presbyterian. Then I say, well, tell me, what is the chief end of man? And if they can't answer that, then I know they're not Presbyterian. Or if they are, they've been asleep for a long, long time. 
Well, our purpose in everything is to glorify God. And we do that when it comes to missions and evangelism by praying, by giving, by going, and by doing. And that's my prayer today for this church. And I know you already do these things, but I wish all of you did them. And everybody then to your best ability to the praise of this glorious day. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and your mercy. Father, we are grateful that you do not deal with us as we deserve, but by your grace. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would indeed help us to see how easy it is for us to take a servant's heart and then the truthfulness of, of your word and its great power and the message of truth and then bring people to glorify God. Father, may that indeed be the heartfelt need of this body of believers. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.